So Philippians 2, starting at verse 5. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The word of God. Good morning, everybody. It's nice to be back with you. Um, You think that's strange? I think I've been preaching in different churches the last three weeks or so. So it's been uh, an experience seeing other friendly congregations, some small, some large. Last week was at Winterslow, where I think we're only about 12 because of the church, uh, uh, people being away on holiday. But it's great uh, that uh, we have fellowship with other denominations and groups. Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Fathers, we come to your word, particularly to understand more about the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to understand not just with our eyes, but in our hearts. And how we pray that your Holy Spirit would illuminate us and create change in our hearts and lives, that we might be the men and women you are calling us to be in Christ Jesus, for his name's sake. Amen. Right, first little slide up on the board. Um, I hope that uh, we can get this right. You've seen one of these? It's an OxoCube. What does an OxoCube make? Yeah, horrible stuff. Gravy, isn't it? Lovely, yes. And uh, I think to, to make gravy, if you're doing it at home, you sort of, what you do is you reduce it. Isn't that what the word they use? You get your pan and you just keep stirring and stirring and stirring, boiling and boiling, until it gets thicker and thicker and gooier and gooier. Well, Oxo have managed that to a great art. We've got into a tiny little cube. And of course, you take that cube out... And then what do you do to make it gravy again? You add hot water, yeah, and you're back through reversing the process. Now, the thing is that the Apostles' Creed, next slide, please, is a bit like an oxocube. It takes everything and it distills it and reduces the whole teaching of the Bible about God into a very small space. In fact, there are just 12 statements in there. And, you know, when you get your hot water and you, thick, thicken the, thick, or you thin it out and you turn it into gravy, some people like an oxocube in a cup, which is quite strong, quite bitter for some people. Other people like to really make it uh, very um, uh, soft and easy and uh, very heavily diluted and spread it all over their plate. Well, the creed is um, a highly condensed statement about God who he is, and as you can see, it's in three parts. We believe in the Holy Trinity. Father, the first two phrases there. The Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, there's quite a bit. He is the center of the universe and the center of the creed. And of course, the teaching in the Holy Spirit, and we come in there in terms of the church. And it is a fully Trinitarian structure that we might understand. We do not worship three gods. We worship one who is three persons in one. And through our series here, we're understanding more about who he is. So the next slide. Last week, Barry looked at who Jesus was. The first few statements about I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. 
And it's looking at who he was as a person. Four statements are in there. He was Jesus, which is the same as the Hebrew word Joshua, which means savior. So there's an awful lot in that, what it means for him to be savior. And Barry explained that. He is the Christ, the, uh, as, as Barry said, Meshiach, the uh, anointed one, the one that God was going to fulfill history through. He is the son of God, God Almighty, uh, Penta, uh, Krator, it's described as in Greek. That means the uh, omnipotent one, all-powerful one, the almighty. And uh, that was well explored last week. And finally, he is the Lord, the sovereign. Kyrios is, was described last week. The one who we worship and serve. Now, that is who he is in his person. But this week, we're moving on. Next slide, please. And we're going to look further at his work. The creed makes great emphasis on what Jesus did and what he was. And of course, when you get to the New Testament and the Gospels, they do exactly the same. They explain in great detail how he died. All four Gospels spend most time explaining that so that we might understand it. And the rest of the New Testament explains it. There are two parts here, and you'll get the second part next week. The first part, I've highlighted some of the key verbs of what happened to Jesus, conceived, born, suffered, and so on. And that's what we'll be covering this morning. But next week, Barry will be looking at the other elements, the second half of how he rose again and ascended. And uh, that comes out very well as we read this and in the reading we've just had from the book of Philippians. Let me show you how Jesus came down. I believe in Jesus. What are we looking at today? Why we're looking at his crowning sacrifice, the crowning achievement, all history focused on this activity of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the central thought of Christianity, of humanity's encounter with God. And here we have it. Next slide. Jesus was both man and God. The God-man fused in one. But Jesus came down. First click. Most people in life spend their life struggling to get up in society. Earn more. Bigger house. Bigger family. Bigger prestige. Jesus had all that. He came down. He came down from heaven. From earth to heaven. Who is God and Lord of all? As our Christmas carol reminds us. And the verbs of the creed illustrate this very well. Next click. He, he, he was conceived. Can you imagine God in a test tube? Well, God put himself into a tiny womb inside the womb of the Virgin Mary and conceived in there. Then he went lower. He was born into humanity and became one of us. He went lower still. He was uh, brought before, uh, he became human like us, but he was brought before Pontius Pilate and he suffered. And we know the cruelty and the injustice of that trial. But we're still, he was crucified. Why did that happen? How much lower can you go? Why, he died and was buried in a stone cold tomb. But he went lower still according to the creed. It says he descended into the land of the dead. Now we know he didn't lie there alone and didn't stop there. Because we see, if you take the next clip, that things came back up again, and the creed describes that, and Barry will next week. But just one click, you can see he rose, ascended, seated the right hand, and is coming again as the judge 
of this entire world and universe. Now, it's very interesting that reading we had from Philippians. Because you might well say to me, well, if that's what you Christians believe in your teaching, your doctrine, where do you get it all from? Well, actually, we've just heard it. Next click, please. Next slide. From Philippians, we discover how God encapsulated Jesus and brought him down to become nothing. That's the word used in verse uh, 7. He made himself nothing, became a slave and so on, and in human likeness, down, down, down he came. Next slide, please. If we impose those uh, ideas on top of that. Next click. You'll see how he came obedient to death itself, why even death upon the cross. But it didn't stop there because the next half of that reading in uh, Philippians verses 9 to 11 say, God has exalted him to the highest place. Next click. And given him as a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. All mankind will acknowledge whether they like it or not, that Jesus Christ is Lord and God. And in that crowd, if you look around and check the faces, you'll find Saddam Hussein and Adolf Hitler bowing their knees. You'll find the Taliban and the Mujahideen and those murderers doing the same. But you'll find your next-door neighbor and your other friends and some indeed of your relatives who have spurned the Lord Jesus Christ, forced to acknowledge who he is. But I'll leave all that to Barry next week. I'm not getting stuck into that. But you can see that the pattern is there and this wonderful passage in Philippians plus what we've heard in the creed brings it together. How did it all happen? What did Jesus really, really, really do through his death and through his sacrifice? Next click, please. The gentleman on the left here isn't around these days, funny old thing. (laughs) This is William Tyndall, who is one of the first people to translate the Bible into English in the uh, 16th century, 1530. He translated large parts of it, and it cost him his life. King Henry VIII had him killed, martyred, strangled, and then burned on, on a stake just for translating the Bible into the common person's language. But when he was translating and going through it, this example, incidentally, is the the gospel according to John uh, that he translated. And of course, with printing presses, that was able to be circulated. And when he came to a certain word, in Greek, the word is hilasterion. In uh, Hebrew, the word is uh, kippur or kaporet. And he looked at how to translate it. Now, we in English today translate it as reconciliation. When two hostile forces, Kim Jong-un and Trump, no, they didn't get reconciled, sorry. But when two hostile forces get together, completely opposites, and are brought together into one. The word reconciled actually is a French origin word, and Tyndall didn't have that. English language didn't have that word in his day. So he looked very carefully at how can I describe and translate this word that explains what God is doing, not just in Jesus, but in all the sacrifices of the Old Testament. And he came up with the word of the two being at one. And he came up with the word at one-ment. Atonement. 
God bringing man to himself and uniting in one and dealing with our deepest problem of human sin and rebellion. And so, next click, you should see Romans 3, 23. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement, of reconciliation. Jesus, in his life and his death, brought us to God through his sacrifice and through his life and his death, bringing God and man together at one. And next click should have another verse on it. In Corinthians, Paul describes it, that God in Christ was reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's sins against them. How can I illustrate this point? I've illustrated it various ways before in the past. I'm going to repeat one way that I've done in the past to help us all understand what exactly was God doing on that cross. Had he lost his mind or was there a big purpose to it? Let me explain it as follows. And sorry if you've heard this before. Here's me and there I am, grown boy growing up. But as I grow up, I discover that I like sin. I like to disobey. I like the things, the displeasures. Let this little notepad represent my sin. And I take my sin and I cling on to it. I do not want to let go of it. That is why I'm about, that's my life. That's me. Don't separate me from it. But God looks at my sin and says, I cannot have that in my heaven. One simple white lie And heaven would be full of ambulances, hospitals, prisons, murder, and death. It cannot be allowed to enter. God looks at my sin and says the wages of sin is death. I must punish that sin. But if God punishes my sin, he punishes me and I die for eternity. Here, let me represent the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, of course, has no sin, but is innocent. Pontius Pilate's wife ran out halfway through the trial, and she said to Pontius Pilate, have nothing to do with that innocent man. Even the godless recognize the purity and perfection and innocence of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was an innocent, perfect man. But he was able to do something miraculous. And on the cross, he came down and he looked at poor Roy Collins and Barry and your name, you can substitute everybody's sin in the world. And he came and he grasped my sin and took it from me and put it on the cross. And God punished his own son on Calvary's cross and dealt with sin of humanity once and for all. I am declared innocent. I'm not saying I'm innocent, but in God's eyes, Jesus has taken it all. Your sin, my sin. How can we understand this a little bit better, perhaps? Well, in his book, To Explain the Creed... Uh, Alistair McGrath, um, who comes from Downpatrick in Northern Ireland, I bet you didn't know that, um, who's one of the best theologians in the Church of England, uh, looked at several images, and I thought I'd take some of his ideas and some of these images and uh, uh, explain them a bit further. But I think there's four images we can take away, and with that we will then turn to communion, where we hopefully will understand what we're doing in that aspect of the service. 
The first image is quite an easy one. Next one. It's victory. Simple as that. Victory. Because on the cross, Jesus destroyed sin once and for all. Now look, it says here in uh, the uh, book of Corinthians, it says, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Now if you have bees or wasps flying around you, if you're like me, you just get a little bit nervous. And some of you get the old newspaper and roll it up, and you wait for the one lands at the right time, and you soon dispose of it. But if someone were to take the sting out of a bee and a wasp, well, you wouldn't care. Well, so it is with death. The sting that is behind death is our sin. But once Jesus has removed that sting, he then can give us eternal life, and we have nothing to fear in death. Death, indeed, for the Christian believer, is but a door that opens up to a much more fantastic and perfect world into which we are invited to enter. And you enter it the moment you trust Jesus Christ. You don't have to wait till you die to enter that. You can know him and eternal life here and now. So death is destroyed. The enemy, uh, the last enemy is, is death and it's swallowed up in victory. And Jesus Christ on the cross gives us the victory. The old hymn says, Death cannot keep its prey, Jesus my saviour. He tore the bars of away, Jesus my Lord. Up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph over his foes. He arose the victor from the dark domain and he lives forever with his saints to reign. And so he has destroyed the power of evil, of Satan and of death itself. And if you read C.S. Lewis, uh, which I hope you do, or if you watch The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And uh, Aslan describes how death gets swallowed up through what the mighty sacrifice has done. The next image is one that the Jews of the day would be extremely familiar with. Now, we are not these days but it's still a reality, nonetheless. We've got, got the next image, please. And it's the image of sacrifice. Now, you aren't, I don't think any of us are Jews here. I could be wrong. Lovely if you were and had that background. But in Jesus' day, the Jews knew fully what sacrifice was about. Every year, they had to kill a Passover lamb. And they had to put its blood and smear it across the lintel and the doorposts as a reminder that a lamb had died and had taken away their guilt and that they could be freed. And furthermore, the sacrifices were very familiar to them. Every, sun, every, every, every weekday, uh, there would be a sacrifice of a lamb in the morning and the evening in the temple. And on Sundays, it would be twice. So they were well aware and very familiar with the idea of sacrifice. There are three features to a sacrifice that we'll look at in a minute. But when Jesus appeared, his cousin, John the Baptist, said, Look, or behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You didn't need to tell the Jews anything further. They knew exactly what he was talking about. They had it immediately, yeah, Passover, yeah, I've got it. I have to take a lamb as a sinner to a temple, I've got it. 
He is a substitute. He's someone who's standing in my place. And uh, Jesus himself said, look, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Again, the homely image of the lamb brought forward. There are three aspects to the sacrifice. And if you look at them, they're all in this little picture. You see the lamb. The lamb is obviously the offering. (coughs) And there must be an offering. I'll use another technical word. That lamb is going to become a big word. Uh, The word is propitiation, an offering that is acceptable to God. Then in front of the lamb is an altar. There is a place where the sacrifice will be offered. And that sacrifice has two, two elements to it because the blood of that lamb will be spilt and put around the base of it and then the lamb's body will be dissected and then burnt on top of the altar and as the smoke goes up, the smell of that carcass and of the lamb will rise and God accepts it as an acceptable sacrifice, as a substitute, as an offering for sin. But the third element is that the priest is involved who's in the far distance. The priest is the one who is a mediator. He stood between God and men on behalf of men. And he would then conduct the sacrifice and raise the knife and take part in it. All three elements were achieved by Jesus on the cross of Calvary. Jesus was the lamb, the offering, the sacrifice, the propitiation. But not just that. Jesus was the altar. It was not the cross of wood was the sacrificial point. Paul explains very carefully, it was the body of the Lord Jesus Christ was the altar on which the life was given. And then thirdly, we discover in the book of Hebrews that actually Jesus was in the role of the high priest. He was the priest who willingly offered himself. He was both the offering and he was the priest. And he was the place of the sacrifice. Jesus was all three. And that imagery the Jews would understand. Even though by our shallow westernism, we surely must get some of these ideas and realize just what Jesus has done for us. Next click. Because it points out that quite different to the sacrifices in the Old Testament, when Jesus offered his life for one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. He offered it once and for all, not every twice a Sunday and once every day. No, no, no. Once and for all on the cross. And this wonderful image of how Jesus achieved this atonement of bringing God and man at one. Now, the third image is used in the Bible, which is, again, a very interesting one. I don't know if some of you have seen this film about a chap called Freddy Heineken. And as his surname indicates, some of you gentlemen may be familiar with some of his products. Uh, They come in green cans, I think, these days. Freddy Heineken owned the Dutch brewery called Heineken. Funny old thing. And he was a very wealthy man indeed. And um, I don't know if you had the chance, Anthony Hopkins, I think, plays his part in the film that uh, is, is going around of that name. But um, Freddie was uh, captured with his driver outside his factory. They drove him. Uh, these guys actually, is, you think is rather stupid. The way the film depicts it, the, the guys, the, the criminals were together in a pub and they were drinking from Heineken. They looked, there's somebody we could capture, so be careful where you drink. That's <laughs> all I can say. But anyhow, they looked, and they, so that made him a target. And outside his factory, they captured him. 
drove him away, went to a, a, a sort of work, uh, uh, what do you call it, a harbour area in Amsterdam, and they took a building, and they were very clever. They, um, they put a false wall inside the building and bricked it up, put lots of soundproofing in, and at the back of this building, through a secret entrance, they locked Heineken for several weeks, nearly a month, with his driver, and nobody could hear. So a ransom went out for 32 million guilders. Now, that's, I think, about 12-something another million pounds. So, reasonable price for the head of Heineken. Anyhow, they, uh, uh, it was agreed, and Heineken was, was told to communicate with people to make sure that they paid it. But it was agreed he would pay this sum, and sure enough, they did. Problem was, when they paid the sum, they left Heineken locked in this building, and nobody knew where he was. But fortunately, the police were fairly clever and managed to find him, and they brought his release, and that was it and eventually brought the criminals to justice, and most of the money was returned. Why am I telling you so much about that story? Well, the key thing about ransom is there are three elements to it. Next click. You see, Jesus came, it says, not to be served, not to be waited upon, but rather to serve and give his life a ransom for many. And the three elements there are to a ransom, as Heineken discovered, was you've got a victim who's trapped, cannot be freed, and is abused and being destroyed in where they are. That's where we are with sin. A payment has to be made that has to be full satisfaction so that the uh, people who are uh, conducting the imprisonment uh, and kidnap will release that, that person. And finally, of course, somebody needs to affect that release and break the uh, victim free. Now, the Bible says that Jesus redeemed us, that he broke us free, and his price was the precious blood of Christ, like a lamb. Now, there's that theme again, without blemish or defect. And so Jesus paid the ransom, but he wasn't just the ransom price. We were the victims, but he brought release, as we discovered in our first slide. And the last one's fairly straightforward. How else can we respond to this? But by the simple view and fact that God indeed is in Jesus showing how much he genuinely and really loves us. Last slide. Now, you're familiar with John 3.16, for God so loved the world, Barry made you read it out last week from memory, that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should have eternal life. Now, the key thing is that God showed his love. But in 1 John 3.16, which is the letter that John wrote at the back of the New Testament, we discover this is how we really know what true love is, that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. It was Jesus showed his wonderful love in going all the way to that cross. Do you know that when he was on that cross, he could have blinked? and stared at the crowd, and they would have been vaporized. The temple would have been destroyed. Pontius Pilate would have been struck dead with Herod and all the wicked people. He just, he didn't even need to click his fingers. He said when the disciples came up to him, look, what can we do? And he said, look, my father can call 12 legions of angels to destroy these people and stop it. And in Gethsemane's garden, he said, no. I'm not going to take that route. I'm not going to be the big man. I'm not going to be the, well, in my days it was John Wayne who comes over, the, the, or Liam Neeson or somebody who comes in and rescues. I am going to stay because of love. 
I'm not moving for you and for me. That's true love. Beyond all imagining, he laid his life down. And this is interesting. It's not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning at one moment sacrifice for our sins. He loved us more deeply than we can ever dream or imagine. Even when we were spitting in his face and shaking our fists, he loved us and gave himself for us. How wonderful. Next click, I think, is the last one. So much so that God demonstrates, God shouts, he preaches how much he loves us because while we were still sinners, even doing wrong, Christ died for us. How much he has loved us. So in his descent, in leaving heaven, in coming down, and in this part of the creed, we discover the very heart of the love of God, the victory over death he brings, the ransom that he willingly laid down, and the sacrifice that he himself is and gave for us. How much do we love him? How much do we owe everything? Have you come to Jesus Christ yourself? Have you come yet to trust him and obey and surrender your life to him? Have you come to realize that he has done it all? Just going to church, just being a good boy, good girl, just being as as nice as you like is no good. No, 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 trusting in Jesus is everything. And in the creed later on, we discover about some of the real deep meaning of how God has applied that to us, and we can discover for ourselves. The creed talks about the forgiveness of sins, about a body being resurrected and a life everlasting. All because Jesus died for you and he died for me. Amen.